All right, I've still got my iPad. I'm still doing this iPad teaching, okay? Technology. Although I did an upgrade, and uh, now I just barely know how to turn it on. You used to swipe, you know, when you upgrade it now, you got to press this button, and it doesn't always agree with me. So tonight, uh, as Aaron said, we're going to finish what is the shortest single books of the Bible. I had to make that adjustment when I recognize that I think 2nd John and 3rd John are shorter than Obadiah and and Jude. So we've made a little adjustment there, but you get the picture, right? So tonight we're going to finish up with Jude. Now Jude uh, was the brother of uh, James, half-brother to Jesus, and Jude was also discipled by Peter. And as all good disciple makers should do, Peter was an influence in Jude's life. And uh, you can see that influence in the way this book is written. Uh, A lot of similarities to some of the books that Peter wrote, in particular 2 Peter uh, talks a lot about false prophets and and even end times, you know, the last days. And I don't know, is that something that you guys ever think much about, end times, how the last days before Jesus returns? I've studied it quite a bit, honestly, but I have to admit it's not something that I really focus on a lot. You know, I kind of put it into that category of above my pay grade. You know, I just can't figure it all out. And, you know, in my life, I try to stay focused on what God has given me. And uh, that served me well in life, focus. So sometimes I have to admit, I don't give a lot of thought to end times. But the Bible does tell us that we should eagerly await Jesus' coming. You know, we should be anticipating this. And in fact, in 2 Peter, it says that we... We should hasten the return. A lot of commentators, you know, debate what that means. To me, it just means one simple thing. We need to get out and tell as many people as we can about Jesus, spreading the word, because we'll get him back quicker. We want to hasten his return, and why not? You know, Jared talked a little bit about it tonight. We're going to start this series on heaven. It's going to be wonderful, right? I mean, no more pain, no more suffering. I mean, come on. This is, uh, this is going to be perfection. None of the difficulties we see in Houston will be playing out in heaven. Thank goodness, right? In fact, I've brought, I've talked about it before, but Randy Alcorn does a book called Heaven, and I've brought a couple of uh, little hand, little these summaries of it, which I think are great. I'm going to maybe do a trivia later and give those two away tonight. I've got a trivia question built into the message, so that's a bonus. But a lot of people actually believe that we're getting close, right? That we're in these end times. And I pulled out some statistics that people point to, like, for instance, the rebirth of the geographical Israel, which was prophesied in Jeremiah 16. And they believe, probably rightly so, that in 1948, for the first time in over 2,000 years, is when the world recognized the state of Israel. They point to that as being one of the things that would tell you that the end is near, Or you can look in other parts of Scripture, like in Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7, where it says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Check, right? We see that all the time in the world. Or Luke 21, 11, that just says there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. I mean, this world is filled with terror, all types of things. The hurricane looked like a big terror to me when I was watching the news this week. Or what about this one? I find this interesting. 2,600 years ago, over 2,600 years ago, Daniel, in Daniel 12.4 says that 
many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. It was a prophecy of end times. And if you think about that, you know, for, for over 2,600 years, really we traveled, didn't we, about the same way. I mean, he's saying, listen, there's going to be a time where people rush here and there and knowledge will increase. If you think about it, for most of time, very simple in the way we traveled. If you wanted to go across the ocean, you got on a boat, you know, and if you wanted to go somewhere, you probably took a horse and a buggy. It's only in the last century really has, has the ability to travel really sped up. I mean, now, I mean, you can jump on a plane and go anywhere in a matter of hours. I know when I grew up, it wasn't that long ago, but nobody ever left where they were born, really. I mean, nobody left really kind of the small area they grew up. I mean, you never really got far away from home, you know, but now it just seems so normal, doesn't it? People are always going everywhere. In fact, we're now sending people to the moon. And all that's happened really in a relatively recent time. And, and then in terms of knowledge, I found this very interesting. There was a guy named uh, Buckminster Fuller that created what he called the knowledge doubling curve. You may have heard of this. And in that knowledge doubling curve, he says that up until the 1900s, human knowledge doubled once every 100 years. And then by the end of World War II, that knowledge was doubling, over doubling once every 25 years. And today, he says that it doubles every 13 months. But here was what was really interesting to me, is that in a few years, he says that it will double every 12 hours. I mean, think about that. Every 12 hours, knowledge of the world doubles. So if you look at some of these things, it does feel like, right, we're getting close. You know, we're getting close. And, you know, when I started thinking about this and end times, it really kind of made me think about this one particular question for me is, does this going to change the way I live if I really believe that Jesus is going to be coming back soon? I mean, is this going to alter the way I approach life? And in particular, is it going to change the way I approach people in my life who don't know Jesus? I mean, is it going to change the way I approach my family? You know, both my immediate family and my family members that are distant that may not know Christ. I mean, if I really believe that the time is shrinking and I've got very little time, how, how, how's that going to change the way I deal with them? Or even maybe a, a better question is, what about those over there that, that oppose you, that are screaming at their top of their lungs against you? You know, we see lots of division in the world right now. What about that group over there that is attacking you and hates you because of your values and what you believe in? that are just screaming at the top of their lungs and, and they're coming at you in the media and, and everywhere you turn, it's an attack, it feels like, on Christianity and what we believe, our value system. So my question then becomes, how is it going to impact the way I treat them? I mean, does it, does it alter the way you approach that situation? I mean, because if you think about it, there's not a, you know, if he's coming soon, if it could be tomorrow or next week, there's really not a whole lot of time for just debate and argument, right? Because I see a lot of that. I mean, even from the Christian church, I see a lot of debate and argument. I see a lot of judgment and probably some condemnation out there coming out of even Christians, believe it or not. It happens, you know. I don't spend much time on social media, but when I do, I get off of it pretty quick because I see this. Is that the best way? Is that to a way that we should be approaching that situation? And it's playing out all around us. And tonight in the book of Jude, you know, Jude is, I really believe, thinks he's in the end times. You know, and he's dealing with a kind of similar situation. 
you know, and some people that are kind of coming against what they believe in. You know, and he's talking about that. He's going to describe that in this book with us tonight. And he's going to give us, I think, a little bit of a roadmap for maybe how we should act, how we should treat those people that are coming against us, and how maybe we act if we think the time is near. So let's take a look. The book of Jude. How many has ever read the book of Jude, other than maybe in preparation for this? All right. I have to say, when I first read it, I was a little perplexed, but I got better as I went along. All right, so let's start in verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's talking to Christians. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And then in verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jude's starting this, and what he's saying in the beginning here is, listen, it started out, I was going to have this kind of lighthearted letter. It was going to maybe be a talk about some cool and fun things, our common salvation, you heard him say there. So I started out and I was going to write you something about our common salvation. It was probably going to be lighthearted and fun, but we have a very serious issue at hand. So I'm having to change directions here. And what he says is, is that we've have people that have crept into the church, right, that are basically abusing grace. He uses the words perverting grace and questioning the identity of Christ. So he changes his focus here and we're going to see in a minute he's going to do this to deliver a charge to us a charge to fight for our faith so he says there in uh in verse uh, four he says um or i'm sorry in verse three he says so i'm writing to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints so he's he's saying basically listen i'm appealing to you i was going to write this lighthearted letter but instead i'm writing to basically appeal to you to beg you if you will to go and contend for your faith and the faith he's talking about here that was once delivered to all the saints is really what jesus did for us right this was salvation this is the truth this is god's word that was delivered to us and that word contend there contend for the faith it really means to battle to fight like a fighter in a battle and I started thinking I don't know why I first thought of this I was like I could have been a contender do you remember that this is my trivia okay it's my, my trivia so what movie did that come from oh I got the first one right there and who this is amazing to me I had to look this up uh and who uh, was the actor that said it Marlon Brando Kelly gets it <laughs> I'm telling you what would, I, I wish I had another book what was the date anybody know the date of the movie 54, John, I'm going to bring you a book. Could have been a contender. So he's saying, listen, I want you to fight like a fighter for the faith. And we see similar words to this used in 1 Timothy 6 by Paul where he says, fight the good fight of faith. And you know what? Listen, again, I think this sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Perverting grace in particular. I mean, we live in a world and a society where basically everybody's decided that you know, whatever you want to do is okay. 
and if you ever push them back, especially from a biblical standpoint, okay, and we see this running rampant through the church at large as well, they'll almost always push you back to say, listen, God can't condemn that or God can't judge that because he's a God of love and grace. For like, like for some reason, love and grace gives you this license to do whatever you want to do, right? I often wonder if these people ever have any children, Right, Because if you've ever raised a child, you know that loving them is not equivalent to letting them do whatever they want to do. It's just not the same thing. You know, but we live in a world really where that's just prevalent today. You know, more and more you see it. I could pick on a lot of things, but I, you know, one of my pet peeves, as you guys know, is drinking. You know, it makes me want to throw up when I see all these pastors that are drinking and, and they do it in the name of grace. Don't you tell me, don't be legalistic. Tell me I can't drink. In fact, I appreciated the fact that Pastor Jubal made mention of that when he was talking about turning the, the water into wine. And he said, listen, if, if you're using this as an excuse to go get drunk, you're missing the whole point. Right? I mean, I could pick a m- number of things today in churches out there watering down the gospel in the name of grace. We see it all around us. Or what about questioning the identity of, of Christ? I mean, we see that often, don't we, as well? You know, I... I think it's great that our president has called for a national day of prayer, but I also saw where my wife wrote a blog this week talking about how our governor called for prayer, prayer to, to, to whatever basically God you serve. You know, and, and President Bush, George W., who's, you know, I would consider a friend and actually someone I know and respect a lot, even when he was president, said a very similar statement. that we, He once said that we all believe in the same God. You know, even the Pope, I mean, when he was washing the feet of the Muslims, he says that we're all children of the same God. Now, I don't know how he squares that with the Koran, who says that Jesus is not God. All right? It's all around us. It's all around us. People perverting grace and, and questioning the identity of, of Christ as God. And that's what they're dealing with then and what we're dealing with now. And that's what I want you to see is when we read the rest of this and we go through this, how similar really some of the the comparisons to then and now is. I mean, I'm not sure if we would have had this discussion a decade ago if we would have looked at it quite the same way. But today, I guarantee you, you can read through this and it feels like I'm talking about right now, right now. So he starts there in verse 5. He kind of begins what I would say is a little bit of a history lesson and, uh, you know, some descriptions of what these people look like. So he starts there in verse 5. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Don't gloss over that. Some, some translations will say Lord there. I think it's interesting, though, that we're talking about questioning the identity of Christ And what does Jude say there? He says, Jesus who saved the people out of Israel. What's he saying there? Jesus is God. One and the same. I mean, don't miss that. That's a beautiful, beautiful few words there of the deity of Christ. Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, 
nobody really knows exactly what he's talking about there in verse 6. But in both of these verses, the message is really clear. Is it doesn't matter if you're an Israelite, a chosen people of God, or you're an angel from heaven. There's consequences for questioning God. There's consequences for disobedience. And he gives further proof in his kind of history lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. They serve as an example. We all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God says, the Bible says that God rained down sulfur and fire, destroyed them. But then in verse 8, he says, but yet in like manner, okay, these people also, the ones he's referring to, and then he kind of goes through and starts describing them. He says they're relying on their own dreams. <laughs> you know, as I read through this, you're going to see he uses a lot of imagery as he describes this. And I encourage you, if you wanted to go back, just take this chapter and each of these kind of descriptors and just really study them. I mean, it's really fascinating when you kind of go through this. He's saying that they're relying on their own dreams. They're kind of making it up in their own minds. Okay, whatever they believe, not what God believes. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Really what he's trying to say here is that they're playing God. They're playing God. They're, they're setting what's right and wrong. Sound familiar? Man, is that abundant in our society today. Everybody wants to play God. Make up their own rules. But then he says down there, starts and he says, woe to them. And he's going to go into now and he's going to make a comparison of, of three people from the Bible. And he does this for a reason to kind of, again, show further what these people are like. And he says, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perished in Korah's rebellion. So you know Cain, obviously, killed his brother, jealousy. Okay, so these people are jealous. And do you remember Balaam as well? So Balaam, you know, he was going to go out there and, and he was really trying to, he thought he could trick God to get rich. King Balak, remember, and he he was saying, you know, King Balak was saying, hey, go out there and put a curse on the people of Israel because King Balak, he, he wanted to slow them down and hurt them. And then remember the donkey came and God spoke and used the donkey, backfired on him. If you go look over in Saint Peter, in Second Peter, it says that Balaam loved the wages of wickedness. It was greed. Not a good idea to try to trick God into getting you rich. Okay, so it was talking about jealousy and greed. And then I love this one in Korah's. Does anybody know the story of Korah? It's told in Numbers. Okay, Korah was uh, Moses' cousin. And he was given great favor by God. But it wasn't enough for him. He really wanted to take over. He didn't like Moses being in charge. And he wanted to be in charge. So Moses kind of throws down a challenge to, to Korah when they're out there. And he says, listen, bring all your your family and you guys stand over here at the, the entrance to the tents and I tell you what, if, if the earth opens up and swallows you, then you'll know that I'm the one that God sent. And what happens? Bible says is the ground opened up and they swallowed Korah and his entire family. Why? Because selfishness. You know, the power struggle. Wanted to be all about him. Wasn't willing to follow God. 
And then he goes and he gives some more description there in verse 12, more imagery. It's really, again, a great study. I wish I had lots of time. I would go through each and every one of these. But he said, these are hidden reefs. You know, I like that one because really what it makes me remember is, is that, you know, sometimes we want to associate Satan with things that look bad and are ugly. But I look at this and I think about it, I'm like, this reminds me of just a beautiful ocean, right? Just a beautiful ocean where you maybe go snorkeling. It looks so great. And he's saying, listen, they're like hidden reefs underneath there. If you've ever caught your leg on a hidden reef, you know how painful that is. He says, they're like hidden reefs. They're at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. They're there just like they're your friends. They're shepherds feeding themselves. It's all about them, selfishness. They're like waterless clouds, always promising rain but never delivering. It says they're swept along by the winds. They're fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They're like wandering stars. They're leading you astray. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are people going to hell. He also then says there that there's going to be judgment. It was also about these there in 14 that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents. They're following their own selfish desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And then there in 17, he says, but you know, we knew this. Just remember that Beloved, that the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, their worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So, I mean, just think about how that plays out in our time today. I went and I made a little list of kind of what he was saying throughout all of this is that these are people that reject authority that rely on their own knowledge. They're playing God. And they look good on the surface sometimes, but there can be really bad things underneath when you get close. They're filled with greed and jealousy, selfishness. They're fruitless, out of control, leading people astray, causing division, following their own ungodly passions, and maybe the worst of all, ignoring the one true God. I mean, does this sound like today? Doesn't it? I mean, it feels like to me that this letter could have been written to us, right? It wasn't necessarily just to the Christians then. That's a beautiful thing about the Word of God. This is to us. And I think given where we're at in society and the world and how close we may be to those final days, it feels more applicable than maybe it ever has. I mean, it's a letter to us, right, to go back to what I started with, to contend, to fight for the faith. To fight for the faith, but... I want to relate that back to where we started. What does that mean for you and I in terms of how do we live in these last days? How do we approach those around us that, that might not agree with us? How do we approach the people that I'm describing? Because they surround us today. Everywhere you go, you're going to come in contact with people that believe this way. I was 
just looking in today in Yahoo and, and, you know, not even going to begin to even discuss whether I agree or disagree, but I was just reading because the first thing that comes up is about Joel Osteen in Houston. And I could care less about the article, but I read some of the tweets, the social media tweets about it. And what I see from that is just hatred. And hatred against us, really, against God, against Christ. I mean, certainly questioning the deity of Christ, even questioning whether there is a God. Just, it's everywhere you go and it's all around us. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that person that's screaming at the top of their lungs against everything that is that you believe in, that you hold dear, your values? What should we do? I think that Jude gives us a little bit of an answer here. He's starting there in verse 20. He says, but you, beloved building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. So he gives us, I think, four things here that we can think of about how we should act. And the first one there in verse 20 where he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. If you look at some translations, it'll say to build yourself up in the faith. You know, when I, when I read this and I think about it, you know what it means to me? It means take a look at myself. It starts with me. It starts with me. I mean, I can go around pointing fingers at everybody else, right? But I need to maybe first examine my own life. You know, if you looked over there where I was referring to earlier where Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. If you look further in that chapter, you'd see he also says, remain unstained and free from reproach. You know, Jubal, he, he quoted something that I've quoted many times in this class that I think he borrowed it from T.D. Jakes. I borrowed it from someone else. It said, don't be mad at me because my sin is not your sin. Don't be mad at me because my sin is not your sin. So take a look at your own life because I'm going to tell you, myself included, all right, we are all guilty of perverting grace. And and the way we act, what we do, the the way we live our life, maybe the things we don't do, we're all guilty on some level of abusing grace. And I have to say, I think about it all the time in my life. I can't really understand why we're not fanatical about being obedient and, obedient and crushing out sin in our life. I mean, you could, you could live your whole life kind of just thinking, I've punched my ticket. I'm in. But my goodness, you're forgetting all about the destruction of sin. The destruction of sin. The Bible says it leads to death. Not just a permanent death, because if you're saved, you're going to heaven. But let me tell you, you can live a hell your own life because of the decisions you make. Got to look at your own life. It starts with us. The second thing he says is to pray. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to tell you this, this is challenging for the Baptist commentaries. I read a bunch of them. All right. Praying in the Holy Spirit. But listen, it's very simple. The Bible tells you if you don't know what to pray, that the Holy Spirit will intercede on your behalf. And I've said it before, I, I will never get into the debate of, you know, whether you're 
baptized in the Holy Spirit, when that occurs, I don't really care. I'm not here and never will be here to debate that, okay? When you accept Christ, you get the Holy Spirit in your life. But let me tell you, we talk about it a lot in this church, and it's true. We ask all the time for the Holy Spirit to fill our lives. What does that mean? I've talked about it before. I've preached on this exact topic. For the Holy Spirit to, to fill my life. Very simple. I'm just going to surrender. That's it. I'm just going to surrender to the power of Holy Spirit in my life. So you want to pray in the Holy Spirit? You want to be prayed up? The Bible says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We need power. You can't go fight this battle without it. I thought it was just such a beautiful, I love Francis Chan. I don't know how many people know Francis Chan. I just love Francis Chan. I love his heart for people. And it was his 50th birthday and his one birthday wish, more prayer. More prayer. It changes things. The third thing that he gives us here is he says that waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So you know what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, Live with a heavenly focus. Live expectant. Okay, it's an eternal state of mind. We've talked about this before too. Don't let this world bring you down. Don't let this world bring you down into the despair and the heartache. What does the Bible tell us in Colossians? It says, set your mind on what? Things above, not on things of this world. You gotta get out of the mess, I'm telling you. It will suffocate you. You cannot let the world defeat you before God has a chance to use you. We need you. We need you in the battle. So don't get stuck down in this mire and mess, okay? It's easy to do, too. My goodness, just watching the news media will bring you down into the mess. You got to stay above it. You got to keep your eye above. The last thing I think is maybe one of the more important things that he talks about is to show mercy. To show mercy. And this is a hard one, isn't it? I mean, at least in part, mercy, right, is showing grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it. I mean, that just sounds hard for me to say it. And I guarantee you it's something we don't see a lot of on a day-to-day -day basis in this world. Compassion, mercy. But Jude here says, listen, we should show mercy to everyone. He kind of says it in a roundabout way, but he says, have mercy on those who doubt. So he's talking about there is those that are maybe confused might be even people that are being led astray okay and then those that need saving saving them out snatching them out I don't really no one really knows exactly what he's referring to here but it's somebody that's almost so far gone they can't be saved so bad you probably know somebody like that in your life nobody will ever get to them just too far gone and then the last one he says there and to others show mercy with fear what he's really talking about there is just, there's going to be some people that are just going to come at you and come at you and come at you. There's going to be some people that just, you know, you're never going to feel like you can ever just get through to them. And with fear, he means don't compromise the truth. Truth and love, that's what he's talking about here. Nonetheless, mercy. And he's saying, listen, show mercy to everybody. Show mercy to everybody. I taught on mercy when I did the Beatitudes. And I went back and I looked at my lesson from then last summer and looked through my notes, did a little bit more research and then I looked in my blue letter Bible and it defines mercy as compassion by word or deed. By word or deed. And it gave me two final thoughts that I think are applicable today. By word. 
It just reminds me that words, and really even the tone of how you say those words, it matters. Words matter. And how you say it matters. Sometimes how you say it's even more important than what you say. Amen? I mean, I just think so often I see just Christians in particular. I mean, we, we drive people away before we even have a chance to, to be a witness. But the Bible says, let your words be gracious. Right? I saw kind of a cool quote. It says, raise your words, not your voice. It is the rain that grows flower, not thunder. I mean, listen, I hear a lot of screaming in this world today. But listen, truth and love. He says there, listen, you don't have to, you don't have to agree with them. I mean, he says, I want you to hate even the garment stained by flesh. Anything that remotely touches sin. I want you to hate sin with all you have, but show mercy. Start with maybe some respect and kindness. It's a good place to start. Words matter. And the second thing, by deed. Just started making me thinking, you know, whatever you do, please, please, please do more than just talk. Amen. Go out and do something, man. Get involved. Mercy by deeds. Uh, the Aramaic word for mercy is, is chesed. And it means to get inside another person's skin. To see things the way they see things. To feel what they feel. When I did this lesson last summer, I said to walk in their shoes. All right, that's what it means. That's what mercy means, is I'm going to walk in your shoes. I'm going to get down and dirty with you. And let me tell you, you saw that firsthand in Houston, didn't you? I mean, compassion in action was on display for the last week. Every day, you turn on the news, every newspaper was somebody showing compassion, an act of love. Walking in their shoes, seeing life as they see life, down there with them, helping them, loving them. Just a beautiful picture. Jared talked about it. It's when the church is just so great, when we come together and all the difference is gone and we just go serve people, extending mercy of God, love of God. You know, I saw a, a quote this morning in the paper from one of the EMS chiefs. He says about the Marines, I guess the Marines came in and brought their amphibious vehicles and he said, I just love these guys because they get here and they say, give us a mission. And then he said, and they can also walk on water. I love that. Well, Judah's telling us that we have a mission too, okay? And if you look no further than Houston to know that, that it's contagious. When you show and extend mercy and love and God's love, it's, it's contagious, it's impactful, it changes things. It changes things. D.A. Carson said that if, if God is gonna usher in another revival in our world, one of the earliest signs will be Christians extending mercy to the world. It changes things. Definitely changed things in Houston. You can just see it. And all I keep thinking about is as I watch this unfold is, man, how do we keep this going? You know, in one week, two weeks, three weeks, do we just all, does the whole world go back to just the way it was? I mean, how do we keep this going? You know what it all comes down to? Just, it's just you or me. Because sometimes I think, you know, when I stand up here and I prepare all week and I sacrifice and I stay up, I just think, God, what, why? Why am I doing this? What am I doing this? You know, and, I, and here's why. Here's why. Because it only takes one. It only takes one person to set a spark. Extending mercy. It's just contagious. One person impacting another person who impacts another person. 
It's not a room full of people. It's the one person that takes this and says, you know, listen, man, I'm, I'm in. I want to do what Jesus says. I want to follow this battle plan. I want to, one, make sure my house is in order. I want to make sure I'm living the way I need to live, obedient. I'm going to pray. We need a lot of prayer. <laughs> I'm going to pray. I'm going to call upon the Holy Spirit to empower me to do big and bold things. I'm going to maintain a heavenly focus, keep above the mess, above the water. And I'm going to extend mercy. I'm going to extend mercy in word and deed. What you say matters and what you do matters. It's a pretty good plan, don't you think, for the end times? And listen, I couldn't, I couldn't end unless I at least read this last part, the doxology, which is just a praise to God in verses 24 and 25. Some say it's one of the most beautiful praises in the Bible. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. So listen, don't be discouraged. Sometimes life and situation can be overwhelming. Houston definitely seemed overwhelming, didn't it? Seemed overwhelming. But to him who is able... In Christ, all things are possible, right? Spencer saying tonight, in Christ alone, is in the power of God, power of Christ, we stand. Amen? Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this night. God, thank you for this room full of people that love you and, Lord, just desire to follow you. God, I pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters in Houston. And, Lord, I echo Jared's prayer tonight, Lord. I just pray, God, that you give them comfort. Lord, I'm so grateful for the way the Christian community is responding to this tragedy. Lord, I pray for the responders. I pray for those that are being, they're hurt. Lord, I pray for those that have lost their loved ones. Lord, I pray for great healing over that community. And Lord, I pray for us as a class. Lord, I pray each and every one of us, Lord, would, would Lord, take these words to heart tonight, would clean up our own life, would dedicate ourselves to prayer, Lord, keep our sights on Jesus, and just Go around extending mercy to this world. The love and mercy of God, Lord. God, protect us now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.